Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Mention Cleveland, Ohio, and it brings up memories of the Drew Carey Show and its opening theme song with Drew mouthing the words too. All the little chicks with the crimson lips go Cleveland rocks. In addition to Drew, other famous names that hailed from the city are LeBron James, Holly Berry, Paul Newman, David Bowie, Joe Walsh, and the list goes on. In the 1970s, it was home to the Irish, Italian, and Jewish Mafia. The city is also host to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all major sports including baseball, football, basketball, and hockey. William Walker grew up in Cleveland and married his high school sweetheart Rita in 1992. Over the next six years, their family grew to include their daughter Melanie and son Christopher. Will worked hard, he loved helping people, and became a firefighter. He joined the Cleveland Fire Hall in 1998 and served on Engine 31 and Engine 33 before being selected for an elite assignment in Rescue Squad 4. The team were specially trained to carry out dangerous heavy rescues, such as cutting people out of cars, rope, and water rescues. The Springfield News Sun described Will as a dedicated and devoted firefighter. He would give you the shirt off his back. He had a positive attitude and a way of turning the worst news into motivation. He taught classes in the Fire Training Academy and also taught civilian CPR. He became a member of the Freemasons and moved up the ranks quickly. Will had a drive to succeed. He was a proud man. He cared about his family and his neighborhood. In 2000, the couple saved up and bought a house on Lampson Street, but they separated two years later and Rita moved out and Will stayed in the house and the couple shared custody of their children. They divorced a couple years later, but remained on good terms and co-parented together. In 2005, a year after his divorce was final, Will met Iloma at a Masonic function. He was 37 and she was 34. She was a nurse, had a daughter and son as well, and the two seemed to have a lot in common and attended church together. They took things slow and dated for a long eight years. Eventually, she moved into Will's house, along with their teenage daughter and son Macklin and his girlfriend Ashley. Will expected a lot of himself and those around him. He wanted the best for people. He didn't tolerate drugs around him, and he was a tall and imposing figure and wasn't afraid of confrontation with people selling drugs in the neighborhood. Will was doing really well as a firefighter. His brothers in the fire hall looked up to him, and in August of 2013, he was promoted to lieutenant. The position came with a big pay raise. He and Iloma purchased new cars and put an offer on a larger house in nearby Madison. Iloma liked to shop and spend money. Trouble was, 
They couldn't afford everything she was buying. But she solved that problem by getting more credit cards. Cards she put in her husband's name without him knowing. But perhaps over time he learned about it. Co-workers and acquaintances overheard him getting phone calls where he was angry with the person on the other end, but he never shared with anyone who that was or why he was angry. In the summer of 2013, things took a turn for the worse when Eloma told Will she had breast cancer. She was scared and worried because she didn't have health insurance at her job, but Will did, and he wanted to help her, so they decided to get married. She didn't want a big wedding and instead pushed for a quick, small civil ceremony. The two were married July 7, 2013. But the thing is, Eloma didn't have cancer. Her time was running out, but it wasn't due to her health. It was due to her credit card debt. And she knew Will was about to find out and decided she had to find a way out. And what did she decide? She came up with a plan to murder Will for his insurance policy, $100,000 to be exact. To lay the groundwork, she told her daughter that Will was abusive and that no one would believe her. But her daughter did. Two weeks before Will and Eloma were set to move to their new house, she brought up the plan to kill Will to her daughter and her boyfriend Chad. Her plan was for the shooter to pull Will's pockets out so that it looked like a robbery. She went on to tell them that no one would suspect her of hiring young kids to pull off a murder when she actually knew people that could do it. Iloma offered Chad $10,000. He told her he couldn't do it, but he knew somebody who could. She gave him $200 as a down payment. He took the money to buy a gun and went to his cousin Chris Hine for help. Chris was a drug dealer and trafficked in firearms. He handed Chad a fully loaded gun. Chad removed the bullets to make sure his child wouldn't find it loaded. Then in October, Chris planned to carry out the hit on Will, but he lost his nerve and couldn't go through with it. So he contacted another felon in the neighborhood, Ryan Doherty and he said he'd do it, no problem. On November 1st, Eloma cashed a $1,000 check and gave the money to Chad. He split it between Chris and Ryan. Then Chris picked up Ryan, and they drove to Will's house, and he pointed out which driveway was his. It was November 3rd, a Sunday evening, and Will and Eloma were packing up the last few things for the move to their new house the next day. Around 8 p.m., she asked him to go out and get some takeout food, so Will hopped in his car and headed out. Nearby, Chad and Ryan waited for the signal. Eloma texted her daughter, You can come home now. That meant the hit was on. She let Chad know. He stood across the street from Will and Eloma's house, while Ryan snuck into the backyard and hid behind a garbage can. Will pulled into the driveway, got out of his car, and strode to the side door with the restaurant bag in one hand, his keys in the other. He inserted his house key into the lock.
Ryan stepped out from his hiding spot, aimed the 9mm, and fired four shots. At 8.35pm, Iloma heard the shots, and right on cue, raced outside to see Will lying on the ground covered in blood. But she didn't kneel down and hold her husband. Instead, she stood back and called 911. She could be heard telling him not to move, was crying hysterically and screaming into the phone. He's been shot. He's been shot. Oxygen TV reported that when EMS and firefighters responded, they immediately recognized Will as one of their own. He was still alive. His white t-shirt was soaked in blood. But firefighters noticed that there was not one drop of blood on Eloma's clothing, and they found that odd. Will tried telling them who shot him. He said the gunman was in the backyard. They noticed that his pockets were pulled out. Will lost consciousness, and distraught Eloma rode in the ambulance with her critically injured husband to the hospital. Doctors raced to save him and took him into surgery. Family members, co-workers, and friends sat waiting. A doctor appeared and gave them the news they'd all dreaded. Lieutenant William Walker did not make it. He died at 45. Police left the hospital to give Eloma and Will's family time to grieve. The couple had been married only four months. The next day, Will's co-workers used their personal time and vehicles to move Iloma to her and Will's new house. Over the upcoming days, they also showed their support and helped her out to pay her bills. Investigators were immediately suspicious. Lamson Street wasn't an area where robberies and murders happened, and four bullets? That seemed to indicate that perhaps Will had been targeted. Police spoke briefly to Eloma, who suggested drug dealers in the neighborhood might have shot Will to stop him from complaining about them. Detectives ran with this lead. Eight days after he was gunned down, Will was laid to rest. Fire trucks and police vehicles led the funeral procession to the church, where Will's friends and family gathered, along with the mayor and uniformed firefighters from Northeast Ohio. Will had proudly bought Iloma a beautiful coat on their trip to Ireland, and on this day, she wore that coat. Police continued with the drug dealer theory and set up a tip line, and it started ringing. As the tips flowed in, two names were repeated over and over, Rex and Chad, and one particular tipster mentioned both Chad and Iloma's daughter. Detectives began their investigation by talking to the family. They interviewed Macklin and Ashley separately. They both told the same story, that Will had a confrontation with kids in the neighborhood over selling drugs, but they didn't know who they were. Police gave Iloma a few days before interviewing her, and when they did, she told a similar story and added that Will had started to carry a weapon for self-defense when he walked the dog. Then they asked if she knew anyone by the name of Chad. And she answered, yes, her daughter's boyfriend is Chad Padgett. When police asked how Will and Chad got along, she claimed they got along great. 
Police knew a felon Rex who lived next door to Will and Eloma. They knocked on his door and discovered that Rex wasn't home. In fact, he disappeared the day after Will was killed. They also talked to Will's co-workers at the firehouse. Will was highly regarded and they are stunned by his death. One of them mentioned that Will didn't like his stepdaughter's boyfriend, Chad. Then they reached out to Will's ex-wife, Rita. She didn't have anything bad to say about Will, but she did know that there was tension between him and Aloma over her daughter's boyfriend, Chad. Now detectives brought in Aloma's daughter for an interview. She didn't have much to say and was rather evasive. But when asked about Will and Chad, she claims they got along. Two bullets had been recovered from Will's body. Forensic investigators ran the fingerprints from the shell casings found at the scene through the CODIS database and didn't find a match. Investigators continued to dig into Loma's past and discovered she never did have cancer, never went for chemotherapy. It had all been a lie. Then they discovered her massive credit card debt and the financial fraud she'd committed. Meanwhile, Rex is arrested on another matter and is willing to talk to police. Turns out he had an airtight alibi when Will was killed. Then there's a twist, and I do like a twist. It turned out that Will hadn't gotten around to changing the beneficiary on his life insurance policy his beneficiary was still his ex-wife, Rita. Years earlier, Will had named her to ensure his children were taken care of. So Rita received the $100,000. Iloma didn't receive a dime. She moved out of her and Will's new house and asked a friend to keep the family's belongings. They spent $800 renting a storage unit for her things, but she never paid them back. She left Will's ashes behind and moved to North Carolina. It took several months for investigators to get cell phone records, and when they did, the case went in an entirely new direction. In addition to seeing the calls and text messages between Iloma, her daughter, and Chris in the minutes leading up to Will's murder, they also received the cell tower coordinates that tracked the locations of their cell phones. And that led them right to Chad and Ryan. Detectives re-interviewed Chad. He'd previously told them that he'd been at home with his girlfriend, but when they told them they tracked his phone to Lamson Street at the exact time Will was murdered, he confessed, but quickly pointed out that he didn't pull the trigger. That was Ryan, and that Iloma was a mastermind. She planned the whole thing. Police arrested Chad, and his DNA and fingerprints were taken. And when the results came back, they finally had a match to those shell casings. It had taken investigators almost two years to gather all the evidence, and in the summer of 2015, arrest warrants were issued for Chris and Iloma. Ryan was already in prison serving a 15-year sentence on an unrelated robbery. All four were charged with aggravated murder, conspiracy and felonious assault, and bond was set at $1 million for each of them. Eloma's daughter was also arrested as a minor as she was 17 at the time. 
She pled guilty to conspiracy with the firearm and served a one-month sentence in juvenile detention. Chad, Chris, and Ryan all turned themselves in and all pled guilty. Chad received 28 years, Chris 18 years, and Ryan 23 years to life. Investigators had determined that Aloma's son Macklin and his girlfriend Ashley hadn't known about the murder plot. Aloma turned herself in, but pled not guilty. Two years later, on June 21, 2017, Eloma's trial began. She sat in the courtroom, wearing a dress and a black blazer, her face showing no emotion. Court records reveal that during the 911 call, Eloma was asked by the dispatcher four times, Who shot your husband? The first three times, she never answered. The fourth time, she finally said, I don't know. And when the dispatcher asked her where he'd been shot, referring to which part of the body, she answered, in the driveway. The dispatcher thought perhaps she misunderstood and asked her again. But Eloma didn't know. Chad, Chris, and Ryan all testified for the prosecution, telling the same story on the witness stand, how she wanted Will dead for the insurance money and planned his murder. Chris's testimony alone took two hours. He said Eloma didn't pay him and he wasn't going to shoot Will for nothing and that Will had never done anything to him and the fact that he was a firefighter, he just couldn't do it. So he subcontracted the hit to Ryan. Enrique Ramos also testified for the prosecution. He'd recorded a conversation with his friend Solomon who stated that Chad and Chris had approached him first to do the hit on Will and that Eloma and her daughter were involved. Solomon declined the offer. The recording was played for the jury and matched Chris's testimony. Also presented were two letters Eloma had written the day before she turned herself in. In them, she confessed to her part in the murder and claimed that she had been abused by Will. Both were written in the presence of her ex-boyfriend and her daughter's father, Macklin Hines Jr., her daughter testified that it was her mother's handwriting. Prosecutors pointed out that there had never been any calls for domestic disturbances at their home, and her defense lawyer did not present any witnesses to testify to her allegations of abuse. Throughout the trial, Eloma sat and listened to witnesses testify with absolutely no emotion. The trial lasted two weeks, but the jury needed less than two hours to reach their decision. On Friday, July 7th, on what would have been their fourth wedding anniversary, she was found guilty on all charges for Will's murder. For the first time, she showed emotion and cried as the verdict was read. As she waited for her sentencing, Cleveland.com featured a story on the state of Will's house describing it as a boarded-up house on Lampson Road recently belonged to a murdered Cleveland firefighter. Now, the structure is just another fire hazard in the making. The brick staircase at the front of the house has collapsed. Vinyl siding, which covers the wood of the two-story structure, is discolored and buckling. The roof appears prime for kindling. A passerby would never guess that Lieutenant William Walker a commander in the city's fire department, lived in the house.
Milama was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for aggravated murder and 11 years in prison for a conspiracy to run concurrently and six years for the firearms to run consecutively. The Dayton Daily News reported the judge told her, You took a life, no remorse, no consideration of the life she would destroy. Do I think you could come up with another plan if you were back in the community? Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of the Mixday family. Joseph didn't know that Chase was a gambling addict and heavily in debt with a criminal past. His work quality was poor and he was about to be fired. Then Chase drove the SUV a hundred miles to the desert. There he dug two graves. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>